I don't mean to be telling tales out of school, but there's a feller in there who'll pay you $10 if you sing into his can. I'm not here to make a record, you dumb cracker. They broadcast me out on the radio. It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson's Suzanne Mitchell, a double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Happy Saturday. Happy Father's Day weekend, everyone. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour. And doggone glad to be there, too, especially ably assisted by tall guy Nathan at the board. Nathan, how are you today, sir? Good morning, Gary and Suzanne. Celebrating a couple holidays today. Well, I guess maybe one of them for me. I'm not sure about you, but I know there's other fathers out there to say happy Father's Day, too. And as well as happy Juneteenth today. The very first, the inaugural Juneteenth. So happy Juneteenth to you, too. And let me just ask you, Nathan, now you're a a man uh, young in years by all appearances here. Do you have any offspring? No, I do not. Okay. All right. Well, there's you got plenty of time. He is not a father, but he probably (laughs) has a father. I'm pretty sure. Okay. I have a little dog at home if you want to consider dogs being, you know, being fatherly figures to them. Well, is that dog going to take you out to brunch tomorrow? (laughs) I'm not sure if I'd be a big fan of the food that she'll serve me, but we'll see. Listen, don't be ungrateful. (laughs) A bowl of food is a bowl of food, right? That's right. There you go. Very good indeed. We are so happy today. I always love it, Suzanne, when we have a first-time guest, and especially one who is well-schooled and very experienced in the world of metaphysics. Well, it's a two-sided coin, I tell you, Gary, because we get very excited about our first-timers, but we also don't know what to expect because it is the first time. And so we are looking forward with uh, excitement, eagerness, a little trepidation. And, uh, but it's all about having fun. But we're going to have fun today for sure on this Saturday. Why don't you do the, the mad props, as we like to call them, and let's bring our guest on. I am only too happy to do so. Now, the gentleman's name is William, even Reverend William Patridge, but he likes his friends to call him Bill. And so we will. Bill Patridge experienced the metaphysical world around the age of six when he lived in a haunted house. The ghost of the original owner was still around, and Bill was the only person who could see her. That'd be a bit of an epiphany, would it not? After a life-threatening experience where his spirit guide actually saved his life, Bill's family sought out spiritualist mediums to answer their questions, and I'll bet they had some. These mediums became his babysitters, and he was trained early in the use of occult and divination tools. Bill had been involved in spiritualism and metaphysics ever since. Bill Patridge is a graduate of the Morris Pratt program offered by the NSAC for the civilians, that's National Spiritualist Association of Churches, holding degrees as a licentiate minister and certified medium. At the national church level, Bill was the first chair of the Science Committee, dedicated to historical research and current investigations into psychic phenomena. This committee was formed to educate church members, and build a bridge to the scientific community. 
you got to love a man that takes his metaphysics seriously. And so for the first time ever, I'm sure it won't be the last. Nonetheless, we are glad to have Bill Patridge with us. Bill, how are you doing today? And happy early Father's Day. Well, thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to be here and an honor. Oh, we are honored to have you with us. My goodness, your credentials are sterling, and you are a man of great experience in this multifaceted field of metaphysics and, and spiritualism, which is a religion, it's a philosophy, it's a movement that, as far back as I can trace it, Bill, goes back to some extraordinary experiences had by uh, two young girls known as the Fox Sisters, and we're talking about the middle 1800s before the Civil War, if I have it correct. Is that not true? Yes, sir. It was 1848. The actual founding of spiritualism, as we celebrate it, was March 31st, 1848, when the two little girls experienced uh, all types of strange phenomena in their house that they were renting at the time. It was uh, the Hydesville Cottage, and it had had a reputation throughout the community as being a haunted house. And when John Fox moved into the area with his family to be the uh, community blacksmith, they found it a very, very cheap place to rent. And so they moved in, and uh, without missing a step, the ghost stepped in and started moving things around, making strange sounds. I can really relate to that because that was my childhood. And eventually the two girls made deliberate contact with his spirit, got his backstory of how he was a uh, traveling peddler who had been murdered and buried in the basement of that house. And uh, oh spiritualism spread from there. They communicated messages to their mother. Her mother went and got some neighbors. Neighbors went and got more neighbors. Eventually a reporter found out about it and it spread. It spread like wildfire. In fact, in the early days of spiritualism, when it was competing against the mainstream religions, the other religions would say spiritualism was a wildfire that could not be put out. Yes, that, I'm glad you said that, Bill, because I read somewhere years ago that people today underestimate the influence of spiritualism for a fairly wide stretch of time in American history. There was a survey taken by whom I don't know. I don't think it was anything like a Gallup poll at the time, but nonetheless, a survey. And there were a disproportionate number of responses to this survey indicating an adherence to or at least an enthusiasm for spiritualism. Informally, everyone has had spiritualistic experiences. And it's a very common thing to ask for, if you believe in spirits, people will say no. But if you ask them, tell me your family's ghost story, everybody's got one. I know we do, not just one. <laughs> no, more than one. Suzanne and I have compiled some just since we moved to Florida in 2011. Bill Geary tells me you yourself, and it came out partly in your bio, like the Fox sisters, um, became aware of your own mediumistic tendencies at a very early age. And so one of the things in this Get to Know You interview was, you know, we want to hear your story. 
So tell us what happened to you and how you discovered your ability to communicate with the spirit world. Oh, boy. Well, it started when I was six years old. Uh, I'm in a military family, so we moved quite often. And we got stationed in Birmingham, Alabama, where my father was a test pilot loaned out to a private airline manufacturer to uh, test out their products. And we moved into this old Victorian house. And the first thing I remember was a knock at the front door. And I go and answer it. And I see this little old lady standing there telling me to leave. My mother comes up behind me. Why do you have the door open? I said, I'm talking to this lady. There's no lady there to her. So that was the start of it. And then later on, uh, doors would open and close. Old wooden floors, you could hear creaks as someone walked across it. Old-fashioned hot water radiators throughout the house. There'd be cold spots that would give you a shiver right to your bone, right next to them. Strange lights. Uh, The most craziest phenomenon was that the house had been wired for electricity long after this woman had passed on. And she evidently didn't like electricity. And she would make nightly rounds through her house. And if we did not put up certain handheld electrical items, you know, toasters, blenders, whatever, every morning we could go out to the backyard where there was an old cinder pile where they used to burn their trash And we would find those appliances. And we finally learned that we had to operate by her rules. If not, sure, sure thing. We had to go out and dig them out of the the garbage. Bill, I'm curious about this little old lady at the front door that your mom did not see. And my question was, when you opened the door, did this little old lady standing there appeared to be a, a filmy white person or a solid in color person. To me, she was solid and in color. She was wow. as real as I'm looking at you. Excellent. That's incredible because yeah. I, I think there's a popular image of spirits either being entirely transparent or exhibiting a milky translucence. That depends on the power that they generate to be able to create an image of themselves. So, uh, where in fact, I've heard that when it comes to to full body manifestations, they're rather rare because it takes a lot of output on the other side, apparently. It actually does, but they do happen, and most often when you least expect them. Now, now you were able to see this woman in full color, but. What did the rest of your family think about all of the goings-on in the house? Were they very accepting of the fact that the house was haunted? Um, were they denying it? You know, what did they want to get rid of the spirits? What was going, what was the tone of the the day around your family when this was happening? Well, luckily they were more accepting because I found out through uh, stories throughout the family that uh, my paternal grandparents used to conduct seances in their home. 
So it evidently had been a family tradition, but not one that was uh, advertised. So they were much, much more accepting. So I didn't have the problem that a lot of young kids have when they're talking to spirits and the parents treat them as that imaginary invisible friend, you know, a phase that maybe they'll grow out of. But uh, I would suggest to parents to really listen to their kids when they say they're talking to somebody, because most of the time they really are. Bill, you've given me a great opening. How did you engage with your parents or vice versa on that very subject of what's this kid talking about now? You know, how did that go within your family? Well, as I said, they were more accepting about it, but they didn't know if I was generating it like a poltergeist experience or if there really was an outside influence. And so that's when they started to ask mediums to come in and take a look around and try to give them answers as to what was going on. And it turned out that uh, the old lady was the original owner of the house and from a long time ago back in the Victorian era. It was not proper during that time for uh, women to own property, obviously not to vote, and that came later. And she had come into some money, and she had built this house herself to kind of stick it into the face of the community that she was a woman of means. And she was so possessive on the house that even after she passed on, she couldn't give it up. It was still her house. When you started going to school, Bill, did it pose a problem for you? Did you run into any other children that had that same ability to see spirits? Or did you have to kind of hide your talent? What was going to school like for you when you were young? Well, I was lectured not to demonstrate in school, that not everyone would understand. And since I was always the new kid in school, moving every couple of years, you were always in the crosshairs of bullies and other people just looking for an opportunity to embarrass you. So my parents taught me, just keep it to yourself. And it wasn't actually public school where I had the problem. It was Sunday school. Mm. Because half my family was Methodist, half was Baptist. So they started sending me to Sunday school. But after a while where they'd get the constant phone calls from the Sunday school teacher to come pick up your kid. If we don't do readings in Sunday school, you'll find him on the curb outside the church. Come get him. So after a few times, I learned, I'll keep it to myself. And they learned, quit sending me to Sunday school. Which leads me to the next thing, and that is... um, were you able to connect with anyone that could help you develop this talent that you had for communicating with the spirit world? Or did you feel like for a lot of years, everything was kind of tamped down and, and kept quiet until you were able to do everything that you wanted to do with it? Well, my babysitters which were mediums, taught me that this was 
just a natural part of life. Yeah, back to having mediums come in and look the house over and give us answers. Uh, they recognized that I had a talent, so they took me on as a babysitting. And so I'd sit with these people, and uh, instead of watching the old fangled radio or TV, you know, very few TVs back in those days, we'd sit around and uh, work tables, Ouija boards, crystal balls, tea leaves, tarot cards, worked with the planchette a little bit, you name it. So I just grew up learning these skills, and it is just a part of my life. It's very, very natural to me. And that's one message that I want to uh, give out to the world is that it is natural. We all have psychic abilities. Not all of us get the chance to practice and hone them, but it's like playing the piano. Everyone can play chopsticks, but not everyone can go on and play Mozart, not without practice and some dedication to it. You know, I'm kind of surprised that there were so many mediums to be found when you were moving every couple of years and somehow your parents managed to find them or connect with them. Were you going to spiritualist uh, churches? You said you, your background was Methodist and Baptist, but um, you know, how did you keep finding mediums? Are, are there that many around that, you know, people just were not aware of? Uh, there are. I think it's part of the law of attraction that you put this energy out and it will respond to you. But uh, it was mainly my grandparents, aunts and uncles that were mainstream religion. My father, mother, they were kind of uh, the black sheep of the family. And so going to spiritualist churches, unity, religious science, that was all kind of second nature to us, considering that my grandparents used to do seances in their own home. My father grew up under that type of influence. So naturally, it kind of spread to me. My grandmother led seances and did automatic writing in her house. And um, I, I heard stories where the children, the two daughters, had to vacate because she was working with all adults. And my mom, who was always a very mindful, good girl, would leave the house. But my aunt, who was uh, a little less mindful, would peek through the door to watch them working. And she said it was fascinating. And, and she had quite an interest in mediums and mediumship, just based on peeking through the, the door into the living room where they were working. So interesting. Oh, absolutely. It's one of the crazy rules of conducting a seance that you don't have children present, mainly because they get fidgety, they get bored, and they can be disruptive, and it can bring down the whole purpose of having a seance. So normally when kids are around, they're asked to uh, find something else to do, because to kids, it can be boring. I can understand that, definitely. Um... By the way, you had some of the coolest babysitters there, Bill, that I've ever heard. Oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> My babysitters yeah. weren't anything like that at all. <laughs> no, I was, I was very fortunate. I owe a lot to them. When you got to the point in life, and of course, by this time, you have a good measure of personal independence. Tell us about 
when you decided that going into formal training, seeking to become a medium, perhaps a minister, and choosing with whom you would study, whom your teachers would be, when you got to that point, you really crushed a, a threshold, it seems to me. I'm sure our listeners would like to hear more about that. Yes. It uh, was a personal decision because of what I learned of spiritualism about personal responsibility. And that goes into you have to know what you're talking about. You have to experience it. You can't take anybody else's word for it. And it gives you a degree of confidence, reliability, stability. And I had run into a lot of mediums that uh, were kind of self-delusional. I really have to backtrack and not call them mediums. There's a lot of people that think that they are. A lot of people think that they are psychic. And after a few good hunches and some encouragement, they strike out to become a professional psychic, put out the shingle, you know, all those uh, hand readings, $10 special signs. Uh, there's no accountability there. They might actually be genuine, but they really have no formal training, no accreditation, nothing that a client can rely on to any degree of acceptability. Now, when you go through the Morris Pratt course, it's up to a three-year course. It's self-paced, but there is a time limit on it, so you can't twiddle away at it for 10 or 15 years. Once you're into it, we'd really like you to be committed and go through it. And it's open to everyone, not just spiritualists. There's a lot of rabbis, ministers from other churches, a lot of interested people that take the course just to find out more about psychic phenomena and spiritualism. Uh, when you start to study and practice in a spiritualist church, Every spiritualist church teaches. So if you have the desire to commune with spirit and to be of help to people, you get to practice. And eventually you get to practice on what we call the platform. We don't use the word of podium, but uh, once you're up there on the platform and you start demonstrating, you have the chance to collect affidavits, true legal documents from people that will testify that what you said is evidence of spirit communication. And that's the route that I chose to take, that when I'm able to say something to somebody, I'd like to be able to show that I can prove it up. That is yeah. so, speaking of evidential, which evidential. is a word that crops up in more than one context in spiritualism and yeah. metaphysical practice. What I'm interpreting from listening to you, Bill, is that you place a premium on ability as demonstrated and certified. So if, if somebody were to contact the National Spiritualist Association of Churches, let's say, and they want to find out about the background of this Bill Patridge guy. I assume there would be there would be a file, there would be credentials, something verifiable that testifies to your abilities, your background, your experience, and certainly your training. 
Yes, all you have to do is go to the National Spiritualist Association of Churches website, and you can find credentialed workers and churches in your area, and then you go from there. It does, relieves me to hear that, too. Uh, go ahead, Susan. Does the National Association of Churches, um, do they do the credentialing? The only other, um, you're, you're talking about Morris Pratt having a three-year course. The only other time that Gary and I have uh, heard people taking courses has been with the Arthur Finley College in, in uh, the United Kingdom. And so we're, we're, we've often wondered like where people get their training in the United States. What, what is a good source for training in this country? Well, I would recommend the Morris Pratt. It's not done on site, so you don't have to travel up to Lilydale, New York to do it. You can do it at home. It's mail order. But you do have a uh, monitor who constantly is aware of your progress, and you can ask questions of them and get feedback as to what your philosophies are and how your progress is going. Now, when you go on to become a minister, uh, we do have a type of seminary school that you do have to travel up to Lilydale to take, because Lilydale is the uh, national headquarters of our church. Where Suzanne and We've I, been. in yep. 2013, yep. we made a summertime trip there. I'm hoping that conditions are favorable this summer so that Suzanne and I can go back up there to have a second experience. It was extraordinary. I loved it there. We only spent a few days there, but we did stay at the Maplewood Hotel. There, yes. We were there with the only once. <laughs> we did stay there. As, as a friend of mine said, everybody should stay there once, once. <laughs> once. and have that experience, you know, uh, be that as it may, the sense of community, this village atmosphere is just wonderful. And we absolutely want to do it again. I'm sorry it's taken us this long. We were thinking about it last year, but without further explanation, that all got shut down. And so now we've been, we have all this pent up energy and we want to get out and see the country. And certainly Lilydale is a big part of it. I, it's important for me before we go to break, we're coming up on our one and only break at the bottom of the hour. But Bill, it's very important for me to note that I myself, and we've interviewed, I don't know how many mediums. Dozens. You're the latest there. And when I have talked to people who are fascinated by mediumship and who indeed may have had mediumistic experiences, something having to do with the other side, something highly unusual that uh, started them wondering about their own metaphysical path. And if there was one for them, I find that in certain cases, unfortunately, it is, as you say, there are people who have a certain type of experience and before long, and they've even asked me, I'm ready to hang out my shingle. The thing I need to know is how much should I charge? I mean, you're going, and I tell them, you're immediately going from metaphysics into marketing because you had this one singular experience. Slow your roll. There's a whole lot more to becoming a medium than having an experience. It's some very deep, extensive training. And yet I think that the call of the clientele, some measure of popularity and the money to be made becomes too great a temptation for those who really aren't ready. That's true. To become a medium is to dedicate yourself to being of service. And that service can't come with a price tag. 
if you're in it for the money, you are definitely in it for the wrong reason. Words to live by. Thank you, Bill. Let's go ahead and take our one and only break. We are talking with Reverend Bill Patridge. He is a licentiate minister. He is a certified medium of longstanding. He is just now crossing another threshold into retirement, still vital, but enjoying more free time. It's a delight to have him on our show today. When we come back, we're going to get a bit more into the history of spiritualism. There are fascinating stories that abound, and one bit of history that it still resonates throughout the movement has to do with no less a personage than the great Harry Houdini. That is something to hear, and the telling of it follows this very short break. You're listening to Manson Mitchell, and we are at the epicenter of such talk in Seattle and around the world on AM 1150. We'll be right back. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to mansonmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is mansonmitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. What's one of your favorite memories? Hmm, let's see. Well, there was this one time I went snorkeling in the Caribbean when I was a kid. It really just blew my mind. I mean, when you're sitting on the beach, it's so peaceful and you sort of forget there's a whole other world under there just full of all kinds of life. We saw the most beautiful corals. I remember thinking they were waving at us as they moved with the ocean. And then there were all these amazing fish. They kind of reminded me of tropical birds. They were so bright and colorful, just darting all over the place like birds in the sky. I'll never forget it. It completely changed the way I look at the ocean. Most of us have a memory of being in nature we'll never forget. Let's protect the world's natural places so more memories can be made for generations to come. Visit worldwildlife.org. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed holistic physician Mark Mincala for the first time to talk about his med- manifesting miracles by accessing our superconscious state. On Saturday, Kelly Sullivan Walden, the dream doctor, returns celebrating the magic of living in a state called luminous humanness. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Seattle, Tacoma, Antwerp. 
That's right. We're streamed worldwide on our app and on the web at 1150kknw.com. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Bill Patridge. That's fantastic. Where the town folk meet, not all of whom are visible to the naked eye. That would be true. Bill, if people would like to learn more about you, get a hold of you, reach out, what is the best way for them to do that? Right now, the best way is on Facebook. Now, I'm working on uh, two novels. I've got one finished. I'm working on my second one. So I'm definitely looking for a publisher, hint, hint. And should that take place, then I'll definitely have a website. But right now... And on Facebook, are you under William, Bill? What on, how, how, what's the spelling? Yeah, just William Patridge. William Patridge, P-A-T-R-I-D-G-E. Yes? yes. All right. William Patridge, you can find him on Facebook. Best place and friend him. And uh, if I haven't done so, I will be sure to do that today. Uh, thank I you love for this. that. Oh, you're quite, thank you. I always like to say talk radio is about the stories, unless you're pushing hard on a political point of view. That's not what we're doing today. We are getting to know Bill Patridge. You have some great stories. You have researched deeply the history of spiritualism and the factors that attend its teaching and practice and how Harry Houdini got into the act. I'm sure our listeners would love to know, but you tell the story, Bill. Okay. Harry Houdini was friends with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes. And as the story goes, pardon me, so much going on at one time here, as uh, Doyle had married a woman who uh, had become a medium, or had thought she had, at least Doyle was very supportive of her, and uh, he invited Houdini to come and get a reading from this woman. And evidently, she mischaracterized his Jewish mother as being Christian, and supposedly Houdini took quite, quite an offense at that. And that created a lot of animosity between Doyle and Houdini. Uh, stateside, um, traveling mediums, Public demonstrations were all the rage. It was something to do to go down to the Vaudeville Theater and watch mediums at work with all their stage demonstrations. And they were competing against magicians. And as Houdini was the foremost magician, he didn't care for someone cutting in on his territory. So he began public demonstrations of a duplicating what mediums did. And there was a great deal of fakery during that time, during the 10s, 20s, and 30s, where a uh, crook could actually buy a fake seance kit, which would come with luminescent paint, inflatable ghosts, invisible wires to string things along the ceiling, and a lot of crooks made quite a career out of conning the public. And so Houdini took great offense at that and began a campaign to expose these people. So weekly, in all the newspapers, even old-fashioned newsreels, there'd be stories of Houdini busting a fake medium. 
Well, eventually, somehow wires got crossed and Houdini started to consider that all mediums were fake. And that worked until they ran into uh, Mina Crandon, who everyone called Marjorie. And he was the only medium that he couldn't prove was a fake. And he was so frustrated with her at one time that he had an assistant to uh, place an object, I believe it was a ruler, into uh, the seance room. Because it was a common trick to move things around by using a ruler to push something around on a table where no one could see your hands move. And so this assistant, after the fact, admitted that Houdini was out to debunk Marjorie any way that he could, even by planting fake evidence on her. That didn't seem very nice. You know, when you're talking about the 10s, 20s, and 30s, I think that that really contributed to spiritualism going out of favor. And Gary and I have talked about this with other people since they didn't have that to, to a great extent in, um, in England, the spiritualism really thrived in England after it started here, but it did go out of favor here. And, and the question that, that Gary and I will frequently pose to people is, you know, do you see it coming back? Um, I don't know if it's a religion, a philosophy. Uh, I know there are spiritualist churches, obviously there's the NSAC, but do you think that it, it's possible for there to be a revival of mediumship in the United States, given the problems that it had a hundred years ago? Oh, absolutely. It's on the increase. There is a natural law of cycles. And at one time, as spiritualism began to wane back in the early days of the 20th century, it was asked to spirit, why is this happening? And spirit's answer was, well, we've proven our point. We have proven that people live on after death and that communication is possible so that there is no need at this time to continue with the grand theatrics that spirit used to do. But it is the cycle has come full term and it's time for it again. And I have recently met some incredible physical mediums producing amazing phenomena in seances. My hat's off to them because I'm what they call a uh, mental medium. I've been in seances where ectoplasm has been produced for apports, meaning things appear out of thin air happen and i'm not saying it causes but i'm there when it happens i'm normally used when other mediums have a seance as a battery and that's what my babysitters used to do to me when they'd conduct seances so i was a rare kid that was there at a seance but they would draw on my energy to help them perform their duties but mm. uh, Spiritualism, yeah. psychic phenomena is definitely on the increase. Because of COVID, I just recently had to close a meetup group that I had, which was explaining psychic phenomena. And I had over 200 members in that group alone. So wow. the interest is definitely there. 
Wow. That is interesting. Talking about the airports, uh, Gary and I are familiar with that. We're also familiar with channeling. And, and it's like there are different uh, avenues, different doors that you can access the information from the spiritual world. But as, as Gary and I say, we are favorites of evidential mediumship. We just like it when when somebody can come up with a, a name, a description, a something which really makes that connection because it, it seems more rock solid to me than some of the other ways of practicing mediumship. And I think I heard you say that, you know, as a physical medium, I mean, as a, uh, as a, uh, you're an evidential medium, a, a well, mental, a mental medium. medium. Yes. Yeah. Is that otherwise known as an evidential medium? Yes. Okay. Because, because I open up and as spirit comes through me, I can give descriptions, names, dates, places, which provides evidence for the person seeking the information. Uh, and one other question. I, we, we're familiar, and I think our listeners are familiar, with the various clairs that can happen. Uh, we know one medium who is very clairaudient, and he said he likes being clairaudient because he said he doesn't have to do a lot of interpreting of what is seen. He actually hears the words. And I'm wondering what you have a tendency to, which of your clairs are the strongest? Uh, Claire audience probably would be the strongest, but I see things also. I don't see auras. My hat's off. I'm amazed by people who claim that they can see auras. I see um, like a heat distortion around skin, and that's as close as I've been able to do it. Not every medium is the same. No. We all have our no. own unique gifts and talents and training. Yes. And uh, one thing about our training is that we are taught not to interpret. We call it coloring. We don't try to put our own personal slant on it and come up with phrases as on what the spirit means to say. No, we give exactly what we get. That's why not every reading is the same or successful all the time, because it depends on who you're in contact with. Some people are not good at collecting their thoughts in spirit and expressing it to you. So... We are taught not to guess, not to try to fill in the gaps, not to color anything or interpret. We just give it as is. And the general public generally doesn't understand that, mainly because of Hollywood. They have this, this distorted image that mediums are perfect in every single detail that they get. And that's just not the case because we're not making it up. We're depending on yet another person in spirit to provide information and sometimes they can't do you work with guides bill or do you hear directly from spirits without you're using a guide well both it depends on the situation <clears throat> when i would uh, give services in church part of a spiritualist church meeting is that at the end of the service we always have a demonstration of spirit communication 
And I would have a spirit guide that would line up people in spirit to come and talk to whoever is in the congregation at that time. See, we don't conjure. You can't come to me for a reading and say, I demand to see my great-great-grandmother. Right. Well, that's fine. You can demand all you want. But if your great-great-grandmother doesn't want to talk to you, you're not going to get her. And so you can't call out, you can receive. Or as one medium friend of mine says, we don't summon. No, we don't summon, we don't conjure, we can ask. And if they're available, if they want to talk to you, if they've got something to say, that's fine. That's great. But uh, quite often that doesn't happen because the sitter, the client, is there basically for the wrong reasons. Spiritualism is to remove the fear of death. Yes. To give comfort to the bereaved, to let you know that life is never ending. And that's the basic and the ultimate goal at the same time of spiritualism. But when someone comes for a reading and wants to know what color dress should I wear to the party tonight? Yeah, that's when I start handing them their money back and saying, you're wasting our time. (laughs) And also the case where where you'll have someone who wants the uh, combination to the safety deposit box, and it's not even that deceased person's box. So, you know, I don't know. They're or not lottery tell you. numbers, Bill. Lottery, oh, yeah. We want lottery Again numbers. Again with the lottery numbers. <laughs> if, if he had those numbers coming through, he'd keep them for himself. <laughs> well, well, I would if I could. But that's part of it. Uh, we're in it to be of service, yes. not of personal enrichment. So, to be of service. You know, Bill, and, and we're having fun with this, talking about lottery numbers, et cetera. But here's a very serious question. I've been asked this by friends. There are times when a a wife or a husband will depart. Naturally, there is great grief involved. And maybe they come through sooner. Maybe they come through later. Maybe not at all. But what I've found, Bill, is that maybe the biggest enemy to our satisfaction in pursuing metaphysics or spiritualism particularly is that we calibrate everything by our expectations. If people have, if a gentleman has his wife pass away and six months or a year have gone by, I would hate for them to lose faith in afterlife or afterlife communication because the deceased wife has yet to reach out. Oftentimes they don't need to. If the love bond is strong enough while you're in this physical form, it still continues on the other side. And a lot of people do feel that. They may not realize it, but that connection, that bond is still there. And oftentimes that does not require physical proof that a spirit appear or make something happen in your life just to prove that they're still there. They always are, but the need for contact isn't always necessary. We were talking on the break uh, very briefly because it's a brief break. And you said there was a story that actually changed history having to do with a ghost. Could you tell that story in the time we have left? Oh, sure. I'd love to. 
This goes back to Charles Dickens, who everyone knows wrote The Christmas Carol, which was based on ghost stories and spiritualism. He actually wrote five other stories about dealing with ghosts. And one of them was turned into a stage play. And it was called uh, The Ghost Bargain. And at the same time, there was a man named Derricks who invented what he called the Phantomagorian machine, which was able to create images out of thin air. But he had problems with it, and he sought out some professional help. And a uh, college chemist named John Pepper saw this device, reworked it a little bit, and found out that uh, they could use this as a newest special effect for theaters. And it was a way of creating uh, an early version of a hologram. Mm. And they happened to use this Dickens play as the first demonstration of creating ghosts on stage. Because back in that day in theater, uh, ghosts wore heavy makeup sheets. You yeah. know, so it was a trope that yes. people could know when a ghost character was walking on a stage. Just back in Shakespeare's time, where they used knights in armor as ghosts because it represented something very ancient, even to the Middle Ages. And so this brand new machine that can make an object appear out of thin air sent people screaming from the theater. Mm. And that was worth its weight in gold and publicity. And so Pepper and the theater owners made an absolute fortune off this device. And later on, it became the hologram. So here we have a yeah. ghost story that directly affected the technology to create holograms. So when you go to Knoxbury Farm or Disney World, the haunted house, and you see all these dancing ghosts, those are holograms. And they are direct descendants of Peppard's ghost, as it was called, which came from Charles Dickens' story. <laughs> I love that. That's great. In the remaining time, we've got about uh, just under five minutes here, Bill. Could you say something about the, I don't know that there are any Latter-day Houdinis. They would be in short supply, that's for sure. But in terms of the Latter-day skeptics, which, in my personal opinion, sometimes lapse into cynicism and become debunkers, which is not honest criticism, not honest research, in my view, how do you feel about the current crop of people who say what you do and what you talk about is a lot of nonsense? Well, personally, I think they're very short-sighted, but they base it that it's not scientific. And in a sense, they are right, because science is based on what you can repeat and duplicate over time. And when it comes to dealing with spirit, that can't be done. Spirit does whatever it wants to, when it wants to, where it wants to. So you can't trap it in some type of repeatable cage for study. And because of that, that's the biggest boon that science has, that it's not scientific because we can't recreate it in a laboratory while you're not supposed to. And it even gets extravagant because uh, he has passed on now, it seems like a, at least a few years ago, the amazing Randy, 
I'm sure he was quite a fine magician and famous in that regard, but he took it a few steps further because it, he just seems to have taken this worldview that that sounds like pure materialism with notions of spirit being utterly fantastical. Well, that's now what they call scientism, whereas science itself is almost treated like a religion with its own creeds and dogmas that you don't violate. And anything that challenges a very narrow view of science, uh, they have to tear it apart. They can't allow it to stand on its own. So that's kind of the current war between anything metaphysical and anything science. But there are a lot of researchers now who are into the field of consciousness studies, along with quantum physics. And the more you delve into the true nature of consciousness and the universe, much to their chagrin, it's becoming more and more metaphysical. So at the end of the road, when they finally come to their conclusions, it's my belief that they're going to find us mediums and spiritualists standing there welcoming, welcoming them. I do see that handshake coming about. I hope so. Gary and I are in our 15th year on air of talking with people who study um, consciousness, mediumship, and uh, metaphysical as well as physical things. And we just see that handshake getting closer and closer and closer with what it is that we've read over the years and I hope that happens in my lifetime. I think one of the factors that is that you have to have certain heroes in the fields of the various fields of science, people who are actually willing to risk and that there are precious few I can understand, but people willing to risk their professional reputations in order to explore this terrain. A lot of people simply aren't willing to take that chance. Most aren't, but there are some that are, but finding the correct venue with scientists to explore it, that's the hard part. A lot of scientists simply will not go into this type of research, no matter who volunteers to be a part of it. Uh, my hat is off to uh, Dr. Gary Swartz with his yes. Veritas projects and yep. all of the mediums that have come on to work with him. And he has substantial scientific evidence that life after death does exist. Yep. And, and I have a rooting less, interest myself. Leslie Kane as well. Leslie Kane. Yeah. And yes, that as a matter of fact, if you can say it in 10 seconds, have you seen the program involving Leslie Kane in her research? Unfortunately, no, sir. I don't subscribe to that yet, so I can't comment on it there, but uh, we hope to see it. Maybe it'll be out in uh, Blu-ray. Who knows? We'd like to thank you, Bill Patridge, for joining us today. You clearly are a distinguished gentleman of the metaphysical world. You're welcome on our program anytime. And since we all live in Florida, you, me, and Suzanne, maybe we can break bread sometime together. I'd do it at Disney World. <laughs> that would be lovely, sir. Thank you for the invitation. It's been fun. All right. Stay tuned. We have Jupiter rising up next and then join us next Friday. In the meantime, happy Father's Day, fathers everywhere.